We're in a study of every book of the Bible this year. And as you can tell from Russ's reading, we are in the book of Exodus this morning. And before we jump into uh, Exodus, I'm going to ask you to bow your head and pray with me for our study this morning. Father, we're grateful that we can acknowledge that You are not only our God and our Creator, but our Savior and the lover of our souls and the shepherd of our lives. We pray, Father, that You accept our worship this morning. And not only, Father, let it be a word and a song to You about the greatness of Your presence and the magnificence of Your love toward us. But we pray, Father, that that it help focus our lives on this first day of the week to make You the very center, the focal point of our lives this week. It's our prayer, Father, that as we think about this text, that it will sweep through our minds and through our souls in such a way that we find our, ourselves mesmerized and, and just completely transfixed on, on the greatness of Your intervention into our sinful, fallen life. And that it changes. And so to this end, Father, we pray that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray, Father, that You bless us in this hour of worship. And it's what we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we have been saying at the very beginning of these lessons, every one that we've had so far this year, is that one of the things that we believe about the Bible as a church is this, that the Bible is not a random collection of stories. It's not just an anthology or a compendium of ancient documents, but it is, it is a, a one-thread story. It is a one-themed story about God, about man, about what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it together again. Now, one of the things I hope, I hope you've noticed since we started in January, you'll notice at the top of all of these outlines, there is a title for each of the sermons that helps us to focus on that particular part of the text that we're going to be looking at. And those one words are done for a reason. Not only is it easy to remember the sermon and easy to identify where we're going to be going with it, but also after we're done with this series, we have given you words by which you may trace or connect the dots of the story. And so just to kind of let you know how this works, here are the, uh, the first six or seven words that we've done so far this year. We began in Genesis chapter 1, and the first word, the first study was on what? Say it with me. God. And then secondly, it was about creation. And then we looked at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And not only did we look at the fall, but we saw the, the nature of sin in chapter 4. And then after that, we began that second big section, major section of of Genesis uh, chapter 12 through 25, which is about Abraham. And then after that, we looked at Israel. So say these with me together. God, creation, fall, sin, Abraham, and Israel. You have the book of Genesis. That's what that's all about. And as we go through Exodus all the way to Revelation, we're going to be giving you these one words to help you connect the dots and to tell the story and and to talk about your own faith and how it relates to the one story that's found in the Bible as you share your faith out in the community. So, where did we end last week? Israel is now in Egypt. 
And as you know, Israel was Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Israel and his wives had children. And those sons become the structure for the names of the tribes of Israel that are now in Egypt. And here's where we pick up. Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Verse 8 has a, a bit of an ominous tone to it. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, didn't know the story of Joseph, did not realize the significance of Joseph, came to power in Egypt. And this Pharaoh, to whom Joseph means nothing, turns the family of Israel into slaves, into building the cities of Egypt. And their life is bitter and their life is oppressed as they are building these cities. But as the Israelites are oppressed, the more they are blessed. In fact, they are blessed more and more and more to the point that they fill the land with their population. And this Pharaoh decides that enough is enough. He's a little bit afraid that they might leave the country or take over the country. So he decides to stem the population growth by doing away with the boys. Now, when you think about it, it's not very well thought out, is it? If you're doing away with all of the boys, you don't have to go through very many years of that to stem the population. But at the same time, you're doing away with all of those that are going to do the heavy lifting as slaves in the country. And as he tries to do away with all of these boys, Moses, as you know the story, is saved. And he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up in Pharaoh's household. And he becomes educated and he's affluent and he's famous and he's popular and he's a person of influence. But he also realizes that he's not Egyptian. At least not all the way. That there's a part of his life that is connected to the Hebrew people that are the slaves that are building the empire that, uh, that he is a part of. And so now we pick up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And Moses begins to see that it, they're not only enslaved, but he begins to realize that his own people are oppressed, that they're being treated poorly in the land of Goshen. And in what he thought would be perceived as an act of compassion, he kills an Egyptian who is mistreating an Israelite. But that's not the way the story ends. It comes back on him, this murder. In fact, it comes back on him from one of his fellow Jews. And he has to flee for his life, and he runs to the desert of Midian. And there he is a shepherd, which was sort of an odious thing in the eyes of the Egyptians. They hated sheep, and they hated shepherds. And Moses is probably thinking that if I go into this desert and I become the most odious thing that they can think of, I'm going to be saved from the wrath of Pharaoh. And so for 40 years, he's a shepherd. And then one day he turns to his wife and he says, I see a strange sight over there on the side of that mountain. I'm going to go and see what it is. And you know the story. It's God appearing to him in a burning bush. And the voice from the bush says, you need to take off your shoes because you're on holy land. You're on holy ground where you are right now. And God from that burning bush tells him to go back to Egypt. And not only to go back to Egypt, but he is going to be the instrument by which God is going to speak to Pharaoh about releasing the Israelites from their bondage. And Moses kind of argues with God, and in the end he is, he is compelled to go back to Egypt. He takes his brother Aaron with him, and he is granted an audience with Pharaoh. And you remember the famous line, how many of you have seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? 
the famous line, let my people go. I always hear Charlton Heston. I don't know if Moses looked like him at all. But in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh does something that is, is so curious and so startling and so dangerous. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. You know, the funny thing is, is that question gets asked every day in the world. Every day since then, in places all around the world, that question is asked, Who is the Lord that I should turn and obey Him? I mean, behind that question really is the question, what is so unique and what is so great about this religion and what is so different about this God that I should turn and obey Him? Well, as you know, Pharaoh gets an answer. And they're called the plagues that fell upon Egypt, the ten plagues. And you can say them with me as they show up on the screen. First, there's the water turning to blood. And then we have frogs. And then gnats. And then flies. And then pestilence on the livestock. And then there are boils. And then there's hail. And what is mixed with the hail? Fire. And then there are locusts. And then there's darkness. And each time, Pharaoh changes his heart. He says, take this plague away and I'll let the people go. And Moses says, okay. And the plague is lifted up and everything returns to normal. Only for Pharaoh to change his heart again and to harden his heart. And he refuses to let the people go. And what God is really doing here is God is goading Pharaoh and driving him and, and pushing him and taking him to a place where he will recognize in humility and in modesty before God who is the Lord? It's the one that is more powerful and, and doing this to my empire. But each time, Pharaoh just hardens his heart. Who is this God that I should obey Him? And so unfortunately, it culminates in the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Which brings us to this whole concept in the Bible of the Lamb. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring what, church? What's He going to bring? Judgment. Circle that word. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Now, what he's talking about is the Passover. And the Passover, as you know, is of central importance to the faiths in the world that accept the Bible as the ultimate worldview, the ultimate spiritual reality. The Passover is the center of what makes Jewish people Jewish. And a revised version of that Passover, a revised Passover meal, we know it as the Lord's Supper. John folks talked about it in our communion devotional, is at the center of Christian worship. Now, the question, what is at the center of the Passover and the Passover meal and this, this, this particular story, what is at the center of it that makes it so unique? The answer is the bloody death of an innocent victim that saves the lives of many. 
the bloody death of an innocent victim that saves the lives of many. One of the gigantic facts of the Bible, we looked at it in in some detail this last month as we were going through Genesis. One of the big facts of the Bible is that when you violate, violate God's will, when you rebel against His Word, when you refuse to live your life in accordance to the way that God has created things, God's design, then what you do in that decision is to unleash disintegration and death into creation. You bring not only chaos into your own life, but physically and spiritually, but you bring chaos and anarchy into all of creation. I mean, think about this happens even at the simplest levels. You have not uh, followed God's design for work. And so you overwork. And work becomes an idol. And that achievement and that acclaim that you get from work has become an idol to you. And you're out of balance and you're out of kilter when it comes to work in, in light of God's will. And so... What happens? There's breakdown. Physically, you begin to break down because you're not getting enough sleep. You're not taking care of your body. Your your mind intellectually and emotionally begins to break down because you're not recharging it and refreshing it. And even relationally, you begin to break down because you're ignoring those most significant relationships in your life. That is at the simplest level of what happens when we violate God's design. But now you have an entire empire that says, who is the Lord, really? Who is this God that I, Pharaoh, should obey Him? And for one night, in one place, there is a temporary divine judgment that is coming down. It's, it's, it's not the general consequence, not the general suffering and judgment that comes as consequences for general sin that all of us commit every day. Notice what it is that the text says. The destroyer is coming. The destroyer is coming. Verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on the tops and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and He will not permit the, say it, church, the destroyer. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. The most devastating force in the universe is about to be unleashed on earth. The destroyer. The destroyer is about to be unleashed and the destroyer will cut right through the most powerful nation on the earth. And the only way that you can face this unstoppable, destructive force is with a lamb. There's only one way that you can face this this unstoppable force. And it's through a lamb. It's just so incredible when you think about it. It's a bit incredible to believe that the meekest, most defenseless animal on the planet can stand up to and face the destroyer. And God gives instructions to the people. He says, take a lamb without blemish on the tenth day of the month and keep it for four days and take care of it. And then on the fourteenth day, you are to kill it and to cook it and to eat it. And you're to take some of the blood and smear it on the doorframe of your home. 
and you will live. It's confounding. It's confounding. In every house of Egypt on that night, there was a dead son or a dead lamb. And either the son received the penalty for that rebellion against God, or the lamb did as a substitute. And the night comes, and the destroyer comes, and there is wreckage in the pride of the empire. And this time, Pharaoh lets the people go. Gladly, he is wanting them to get out of the boundaries, the lines, and the precincts of his, of his nation. But then you know he's a human being. And you know how human beings are. We don't stay modest and humble for very long. That pride jumps right back up. And that human hubris will, will make itself known and he changes his mind and he takes the entire army and he chases after the people. But God rescues His people. I mean, what are ten plagues when it comes to, to an empire? I mean, what is an army to those ten plagues? And God rescues His people by dividing the Red Sea and allowing the people to cross over safely as if it was dry ground while holding the army of Pharaoh at bay. And once Israel is across the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army pursues only for the sea walls to come down and to come on top of them and to destroy them utterly. And once they get to the other side, they sing a song about the greatness of God's mercy and power on their behalf. And God leads the people to Mount Sinai. Over a million people walking to Mount Sinai. On the way, chapter 16, He provides manna, this bread from heaven that they are to eat and will sustain them in those places where there is no other food. At this time, the Sabbath, before there are any regulations about the Sabbath, given at the end of Exodus, there's the Sabbath beginning to be practiced once again as they take that Sabbath and recognize and contemplate and meditate on the greatness of God. They, they cease all work in order to focus on the majesty and the magnificence of God. Chapter 17, He provides water from a rock. Chapter 19, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai. And Israel is at Mount Sinai for 9 to 12 months. And they're being formed into a nation. They are a people who are slaves. But by the time they leave a year later from Mount Sinai, they are a nation. And it's at this period of time that they receive the Ten Commandments as well as other instructions for how to live as the people of God. And Moses, as you know, doesn't go up on the mountain once, but he's going up and down the mountain. And while he is up on Mount Sinai, chapter 32... The people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain that they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. You see, the Egyptians are not the only ones who are faulty and fallen in their thinking. Even the people who are the, the beneficiaries of God's grace and the manna and the water and the, the presence and the plagues are fallen in their thinking too. And Moses has delayed coming down that mountain and they're getting a little antsy. Were, is this where we're going to be for the rest of our lives at the foot of this, 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 this craggy, austere, august mountain? One that they fear to even touch? 
So they turn to Aaron and say, you know, this fellow Moses, don't know what's happened to him. Come and make us a God that is not so fearsome. A God that is not so fierce. Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That's a bad deal. That's a bad deal and it sets up one of the biggest crises of faith in the history of Israel. They make a golden calf to worship. And while they're worshiping it, verse 19, Moses approached the camp coming down from the mountain, saw the calf, saw the dancing. His anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he rebukes the people in his anger. And you remember what he does to the golden calf. He grinds it into a dust and mixes it with water and makes the entire nation drink it as, as sort of a, a reminder that this God can be destroyed and absorbed by you. Not the God who brought you out of Egypt. And the next day he goes up to the mountain because his work is not done and he speaks to God about what God's plans are for these people. And he says a very interesting thing as he's pleading the case of Israel. You know, don't destroy them and don't take your presence away from us, but lead us into the promised land. He says an interesting thing. He says in verse 32, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book. Then blot me out of the book you have written. Back in chapter 12, the Lamb was the substitute. Now here in chapter 32, Moses, a person, says, let me be the substitute in order that their names might not be blot out. And throughout chapter 33, he continues to intercede and he begs God not to send them to the land alone. Without God's presence, they don't have a chance. And why would they go anyway if it's God's promised land and He's not there? Life's not worth living without God. And in a, in a I, I think, an incredibly tender and poignant moment, even though there's smoke and fire in the holiness of God that is that is overpowering and overwhelming of humans, it is a, a poignant moment because God says, I'll do it. I'm going to do what Moses has asked. And you can only imagine the love that, 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 that blossoms in, in Moses' heart. He, Moses loves God exceedingly in that moment. And he says, I want to see your face. Those of you who love your spouse, there's just no substitute for seeing their face. That love, that, that emotion that you feel for that, that individual, when you feel... I mean, you're talking about a human being and the Creator God having an interaction in which they are heart-to-heart -heart and mind-to-mind -mind and face-to-face. -face. And the Creator turns towards the, the creature and says, I'll do what you ask. 
And Moses just wants to see the face. I want to see your face. Verse 18, I pray you show me your glory. But God has to put Moses in the cleft of a rock and He puts His hand over Moses to protect Moses from the majesty of God's glory because He doesn't want that glory to destroy Moses. And God removes His hand just in time for Moses to see the back of God as He passes by. And as He passes in front of Moses, verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, verses that I want each and every person here to memorize. He proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Can you imagine having that kind of a conversation with, with God? And your heart just overflow and well up like a spring inside of you with just a desire and a love to see the face of God. And God's, I will let you see as much of me as you can stand and not be destroyed. It's a great moment. But is that as good as it's going to get? As good as Moses is, as good as Moses is, he only gets a glimpse of the back of God. Even the best man on the entire planet is going to be struck down by God's holiness unless he is somehow protected from its purity and its power. You know, there was a time when man walked with God in the garden unafraid as friends. Now man has to be sheltered from God's glory because of his fallen state. That's sinfulness. To walk next to God like that as it was in the beginning in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, that man is to be, it will be struck down by the greatness of God's glory. And I mean, if Moses cannot see the face of God, the meekest man on the entire planet according to numbers, then what chance, what hope do we really ever have of seeing God. And you begin to sense the greatness of fallenness and you begin to sense the greatness of our sinfulness. As great as Moses is, no hope of seeing God. Until one night at a Passover meal in Jerusalem, there's one who's presiding over that feast and he takes a loaf of bread and he says, take and eat. This is my body. And then he takes a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all of a sudden, everything emerges. The man and the lamb are now the same. One time, that cousin of Jesus, John, sees him walking along the street. And in John chapter 1, verse 29 says to all of his disciples, Look, behold, behold, the Lamb of God. Say it with me. Who takes away the sins of the world. John says, behold, look. When Jesus was crucified, not a single bone broken. Because He's the Lamb without defect and without blemish. And when that brave Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take that body of Jesus down from the cross in the evening, it was at the same time that those Passover lambs were being killed at twilight. That first Passover lamb, that animal saved from just one night of judgment. That second Passover lamb, the Christ of God, saved all of faith from an eternal judgment. And where Moses led the people out of slavery, Jesus led people out of slavery to sin in order to bring them to God forever and ever and ever. And not to be afraid to touch that mountain, not to, to, to have the presence of God veiled with smoke and fire but to bring us to the place where we see God face to face and see Him as He is. That's the power of the Lamb of God. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Ben's going to lead us in a song. And if there are ways that you need to respond to God this morning, maybe you've been asking yourself, who is this God? That I should turn. What's so different about Him? What's so unique about this God that I should turn and obey Him and be His? Now you know. Now you know. And while we're singing this song of worship to God, if there are ways that our church can minister to you, we want you to come down to the front and speak to these shepherds as we stand and sing out to God.